You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Among the lives risked and lost in World War II were hundreds or even thousands of dogs, used for everything from guard duty to pulling sleds. And they almost had a particularly awful purpose on the ironically named Cat Island, if one Swiss expat had gotten his way. William A. Pestry's idea was to use squads of large dogs to kill Japanese soldiers, specifically only Japanese ones. Surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, the plan was approved and the training began. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. People have been using animals, making war, and using animals to make war for rather a long time now. Think Hannibal's elephants, Roman war horses, canine units in Vietnam. But for every example of animals being used successfully, there are any number of plans, proposals, and projects that didn't make it into the field, and that's what we're looking at today. Now, if you're going to use an animal for an important job, you need to pick the right animal. First up, you'll want an animal that's trainable and obedient, like a dog or a horse, maybe even a dolphin or a primate. Basically, anything but a domestic cat would work just fine. In the 1960s, the CIA chose a cat. Unlike projects like MKUltra, this one was never subject to a congressional hearing, but the project, called Acoustic Kitty, was provably real. Given their stealthy nature, you could do worse than a cat as a spy. The CIA seemed willing to overlook most of our feline friends' personality traits as they focused on just one, curiosity. The idea was that the cat could walk soundlessly through an area where sensitive data was being discussed without drawing any undue attention. But how would the cat convey the information? The cat would be as my mom used to describe me, wired for sound. The CIA was going to burn millions of dollars and years of man labor trying to develop a cyborg kitten spy to bug the Soviets and retrieve covert information. That's right, we outweirded the Russians. Though I will say we don't know what the KGB was up to that particular week. The story of the spy cat can be pieced together thanks to declassified documents and other sources from the Cold War intelligence community. The plan was to surgically implant a microphone in the cat's ear canal and a small radio transmitter at the base of its skull. I would have put it in the tail, but mostly for that cool retrofuturism aesthetic. Working with outside audio equipment contractors, the CIA built a three-quarter inch long transmitter to embed at the base of the cat's skull. Finding a place for the microphone was difficult at first, but the ear canal turned out to be prime territory, if not a bit obvious. The antenna was made from fine wire that ran all along the cat's back to its tail, 
hidden in its fur. The batteries also gave the techies a little trouble, since the cat's size limited them to using only the smallest batteries available, which restricted the amount of time the cat would be able to record. The vet also, quote, bypassed the cat's sense of hunger. Of that, there may be more information, but I was afraid to look for it. Fitted with these simple devices, the cat could be trained, in theory, to sneak into Soviet embassies or even the Kremlin, where it could record conversations and beam them to nearby CIA agents. The documents explained that they experimented with techniques to command the spy cat with auditory commands, effectively trying to remote control it. And they really thought they could train a cat to behave like a sheepdog. According to Victor Marchetti, a special assistant to the deputy director of the CIA in the 60s, in his book, The Wizards of Langley, A lot of money was spent. They slit the cat open, put batteries in him, wired him up. The tail was used as an antenna. They made a monstrosity. They tested him and tested him. He went on to explain what happened with the cat's brief first mission. It was taken to eavesdrop on two men on a park bench outside the Soviet compound in Washington, D.C. The cat was released across the street and... Yeah, the cat was struck and killed by a taxi as soon as it set off. There they were, sitting in the van with all those dials, and the cat was dead. Or was it? In 2013, Robert Wallace, former director of the CIA's Office of Technical Services, refuted the taxi story, saying the cat proved too difficult to work with. And, quote, the equipment was taken out of the cat. The cat was re-sewn for a second time and lived a long and happy life afterwards. Yes, I'm sure he went to a lovely farm in the country. Full disclosure, Marchetti later became an outspoken critic of the U.S. intelligence community, can't blame him, and was known to advance some controversial and dubious ideas, some of which are basically conspiracy theories. So his insight should be taken with a lovely little flake of Malden salt. A heavily redacted CIA report called Views on Trained Cats suggests the project was somewhat of a success, but it was ultimately found to be of no use to the agency. It reads, We have satisfied ourselves it is indeed possible. This is in itself a remarkable achievement. However, it also notes, Our final examination of trained cats convinces us the program would not lend itself in a practical way to our highly specialized needs. I could have saved them a lot of money. How much? Oh, neighborhood of $20 million. Yep, $20 million cat. The Cold War may have been largely a U.S. versus USSR thing, but there were a lot of countries in the middle, literally, who didn't want their arses atomized. In the 1950s, the U.K. designed a nuclear landmine that would be placed in West Germany to stop a possible Soviet assault on the rest of Europe to not only destroy facilities and installations over a large area, but deny occupation of the area to an enemy for an appreciable time due to contamination. The landmine, dubbed Operation Blue Peacock, isn't that lovely, would be operated remotely so it could be detonated at just the right moment to inflict maximum damage on the invading Red Army. The weapon could go off in one of three ways, an eight-day timer, a remote control, or if someone tried to dismantle it. 
The Blue Peacock landmines were thought to yield a 10 kiloton explosion, which would produce a crater 375 feet or 114 meters in diameter. Such destructive potential ultimately led the British to realize that there might be a teensy bit of nuclear fallout from a blast like that, you know, just a skosh. And the bomb is being buried in an allied nation. But the weapon had another hitch. Apparently, a German winter is to a nuclear landmine as a Russian winter is to Napoleonic or Nazi troops. Just too damn cold. The Blue Peacock team were worried that the buried ballistics could get so cold the detonator would be unable to trigger the blast. In 1957, a British nuclear physicist found a solution. Chickens. Plain barnyard chickens. It wasn't their first thought, in fairness, but the chicken idea did make it into the maybe pile. The birds will be put inside the casing of the bomb, given seed to keep them alive, and stopped from pecking the wire, according to the BBC. The chickens would have been packed in the outer housing with enough food and water to last a week, during which time their body heat was thought to be enough to maintain the triggering mechanism at its working temperature. Ultimately, though, Operation Peacock was abandoned the following year after the production of only two prototypes. There are a fair few people out there who know about Blue Peacock but don't believe it's true. And you can see how they might, given the project's utterly ridiculous nature, and the fact that the Blue Peacock file was declassified on April 1st, 2004. Tom O'Leary, head of education and interpretation at the National Archives, replied to the media that, It does seem like an April Fool, but it most certainly is not. The civil service does not do jokes. After learning about the devastating attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941, Pennsylvania dentist and tinkerer Little S. Adams hatched a scheme to use bats as bombs to attack Japanese cities. The plan was to strap small incendiary bombs, like like really small ones, with timers to bats, and release them above Japanese cities. The bats would roost in the eaves and attics of the buildings, many of which were still simple wood construction, causing them to catch fire when the bombs went off. So many buildings would ignite at once, Adams reasoned, that the Japanese would be unable to suppress the fires before they spread. Adams had an in with Eleanor Roosevelt, so government officials actually considered his plan. By 1943, the U.S. Army was conducting serious tests of it. Thousands of bats were captured in nets and placed in ice cube trays, which helps to remind us how tiny of an animal we're talking about and cooled slightly to put them into hibernation to be shipped overseas. As the military did more research, they were actually starting to like the idea. They found that the bats could carry almost double their own weight in flight, and that their natural behavior made them perfect for sneaking into rooftops and structures undetected. They were so good at secretly penetrating buildings, in fact, that when a few of them escaped during testing, they managed to destroy a fuel tanker, an air hangar, and a general's car. The Marine Corps took over the program as High Command wanted one million bats ready to launch on Japan as soon as possible. The bats were to be loaded into bomb-shaped cages filled with stacked trays, each payload holding about a thousand bats. 
the bombs would be dropped by B-24 bombers from 5,000 feet, with parachutes on them deploying at about 1,000 feet. The bats would spread out over a large area from there to infest the buildings. Project X-Ray, as it was renamed by the Marine Corps, had already been through 30 tests at a cost of $2 million when it was canceled in favor of the Manhattan Project and its new and devastating weapon. If you need a daytime animal-based air attack, there's always B.F. Skinner's pigeon-guided missile. Called, disappointingly, Project Pigeon, Skinner's plan was to put a camera on the front of a missile, connected to a tiny screen in the nose cone, where would be nestled a pigeon, whose job was to peck at the screen to move the missile to the target. As the pigeon pecked, cables harnessed to its head would mechanically steer the missile until it finally reached its mark. There was no escape hatch. Skinner had already used pigeons in his psychological research, training them to press levers to receive food. An obsessive inventor, he had been pondering weapons targeting systems one day when he saw a flock of birds maneuver in the sky. Suddenly I saw them as devices with excellent vision and extraordinary maneuverability. He said. Could they not guide a missile? Was the answer to the problem waiting for me in my own backyard? No. No, sir, it wasn't. Despite a successful demonstration of the trained pigeons, officials remained skeptical and eventually decided to terminate the project. The bad ideas aren't done yet, but you know what's a good idea? Getting all the perks over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, like our newest supporters, Eleanor, Angela, Drew, love you boo, David, Brooklyn, Sebastian, and Catherine, just to name a few of the wonderful folks that help me to defray the cost of this podcast, and also folks who leave us reviews. If it feels like it's been a long time since I read some, that's because it has. My production schedule's been pretty rushed of late, but I'm working hard to get ahead of schedule so that not only can our patrons get their ad-free early episodes properly early, but so that I can eventually outsource the editing. I've edited all 160-some-odd episodes. It takes a lot of hours that I need back. But back to the reviews. Sadly, we have not had a new review for the book in several months. So if you've gotten a copy, I'd love to hear what you think about it over on Amazon or Goodreads. But on the show side of things, here are two from Podchaser, which is like the IMDb of podcasts. One from, I'm just going to spell it out, C-Y-E-A-N-Y, a great podcast that will possibly help you on your next trivia night. Sure hope so. And from Devin, who says, Why aren't most wines and beers vegan? Who was Jumpman and what does he have to do with video games? Find out these facts and so much more from Your Brain on Facts. I've binged the entire catalog twice. I gotta tell you guys, I clench a little bit every time somebody says that because of what the audio was like back in the day because of my propensity for grossly over-processing it, taking what was perfectly good audio going in and just using every function in the program because it was there until it was almost unlistenable. So for those of you who have toughed it out through the audio quality in the back catalog, my sincere appreciations. Launching today on our Tee Public store, which you can reach through yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch, is indisputably the single greatest piece of merch ever made. It's a design based on one of the more memorable facts from the show, Kasumarzu, or maggot cheese. 
I promise, the cuteness of the shirt is inversely proportionate to the grossness of the cheese. I want to actually make a series of these, but I don't know what other facts to do, so I need you to tell me your favorite or most unforgettable fact that you've learned from Your Brain on Facts. You can do that on social media at Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, or email me, moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com. If you do nothing else I ever say, please check out this t-shirt. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. When a beluga whale started approaching fishing boats and pulling on ropes near a small Norwegian town, people got curious. When they noticed the whale was wearing a harness that said Equipment of St. Petersburg stamped on it, people got downright suspicious. Marine experts have suggested that the whale was part of a Russian military program that trains civilian cetaceans for military operations. The ability of these animals to detect and find targets at depth or in murky water is something human technology can't duplicate, but which militaries find extremely valuable. In 2017, Russian state television reported that the country was experimenting with using beluga whales, bottlenose dolphins, and several species of seals to guard entrances to naval bases, assist divers, and maybe even kill some trespassers while they're at it. The beluga whales would have to be dropped from the program, however, when it became clear that swimming for long periods in cold polar waters made them sick. Ryskaya Zima takes out another one. Their aquatic program grew a bit when Russia invaded Crimea in 2014. They took over a Ukrainian military unit that included bottle-nosed, and I'm putting quotes on here because it has quotes on the paper, combat dolphins. The Ukrainian dolphins had been trained to search for and tag underwater mines, 
as well as to stop unwanted swimmers trying to access restricted waterways. Before you roll your eyes and brush this off as weird Russian nonsense, know that the U.S. is right there with them. The U.S. Navy has had a similar program since the 1960s. Note the past participle has had, meaning both the time before and now. Not all oddball military animals get a one-way ticket like a lot of the examples we've heard today. The U.S. Navy, the same organization that gave my husband his amazing skills with electronics, has a crack squad of dolphins. Or crack pod, I should suppose. The Navy Marine Mammal Program at the Space and Naval Warfare Systems Command in San Diego, California, trains 85 dolphins and 50 sea lions to carry out a range of military tasks, from locating underwater mines to flagging the presence of enemy swimmers for harbor defense. Originally, the Navy had wanted to study the dolphins' biomechanics and use its findings to develop faster torpedoes, but quickly the focus changed to covert ops. Military researchers soon realized the dolphins themselves could become a battlefield asset. Originally a secret project, the Marine Mammal Program has employed a menagerie of animals, including sharks, rays, orcas, who are in fact dolphins, pilot whales, and seals since it started. Dolphins have seen occasional use during war. In 1970 and 71, five cetaceans guarded an army ammunition pier in Vietnam, providing surveillance to thwart enemy swimmers. Dolphins were deployed from Bahrain during the Tanker War, a late phase of the Iran-Iraq War, in which the warring neighbors targeted one another's oil vessels. Dolphins would be back in the Gulf in 2003 to clear mines ahead of coalition vehicles during the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. Dolphins even helped provide security for the Republican National Convention in 1996, which took place at the Waterside San Diego Convention Center, less than a month after a bombing at the Summer Olympics in Atlanta. Bottlenose dolphins are better than any machines as far as detecting mines, says Paul Noctigal, head of the Marine Mammal Research Program at the University of Hawaii. They can also do it much faster than any machine could. Dolphins can be especially effective close to shore, where crashing surf and ship traffic generate a lot of noise that would confuse, confound, and counteract modern mechanical systems. But not dolphins. They've kind of gotten used to our bullshit in the ocean at this point. Little personal note, my husband and I went on uh, our only overnight trip for the year to the beach last week and saw some dolphins out past the breakers. I've forgotten how cool it is to see them. A dolphin sonar is so finely tuned that they're able to work around all of the hideous background noise that we've added to their environment. Experiments conducted in the 1990s with a resident bottlenose dolphin named BJ demonstrated this sensitive ability. Noctical asked BJ to distinguish between metal cylinders made of stainless steel, brass, or aluminum. Even though he buried the four-inch-long objects under two feet of mud, BJ found them, passed with flying colors. Researchers still don't know how exactly dolphins do this, but it's a topic that's captured the attention of scientists, both military and civilian, for decades. Maybe for the next Patreon bonus mini, I'll write about the experiment that involved a researcher cohabitating with a dolphin, like in a watery house. Either that or the Russian scientist who tried to create 
human-chimpanzee hybrids reportedly at the behest of Joseph Stalin. We'll see which way the wind blows me when it's time to record. On oh, side note, who else immediately thinks of B.J. Honeycutt from MASH when they hear the name B.J.? Congrats on qualifying for AARP, I guess. The program also trains California sea lions. They don't have any natural sonar, but they have excellent eyesight and are especially good at noticing changes in their environment and things that are out of place. Sea lions also have the advantage of being essentially amphibious. Suck it, dolphins. The U.S. Navy uses them to find and retrieve unarmed test ordnance like practice mines. Handlers give a sea lion an attachment system it can hold in its mouth and send it off the boat. Once the animal finds the target, it clamps the device onto it, and handlers in the boat can haul it in. A 2011 demonstration for the media in San Diego Bay featured a former U.S. Navy SEAL attempting to infiltrate the harbor with an unarmed mine. The Navy deployed dolphins and sea lions to patrol the area, and both caught the diver on every one of his five attempts. The sea lion even managed to attach a clamp to the diver's leg, and handlers on the surface reeled him in like a fish, which I cannot find video of, but I sure hope it's out there somewhere. Because the universe likes balance, that same year, the Navy boys in San Diego also killed three wild dolphins with an underwater explosion when the animals, despite the Navy's best effort, got within shockwave radius after it was too late to abort. So if you were to find yourself reincarnated as a dolphin, I might just steer clear of San Diego entirely. But dolphins could be trained to kill according to a persistent rumor that clings to the Marine Mammal Program. In his memoir on life as a Navy SEAL, Brandon Webb wrote about a training exercise in San Diego to evade enemy military dolphins. Trainers used the animals to track down enemy divers, outfitting them with a device strapped onto the head that contains a simulated compressed gas needle. Once the dolphin has tracked you down, it butts you. The needle shoots out and pokes you, creating an embolism. Air or gas injected into a vein or artery can quickly travel into the organs, something that's potentially lethal. Webb sums it up this way. Within moments, you're dead. The program's FAQ page emphatically denies ever-training dolphins, quote, to harm or injure humans in any fashion or to carry weapons to destroy ships. Now, the keen-eared among you may have picked up on the inclusion of sharks on the list. The sharks weren't going to be used for finding ordnance. They were going to be the ordnance. The sharks were unwitting suicide bombers. This lunacy was an actual project sanctioned by the Navy, according to one of my all-time favorite authors, Mary Roach, who found this program while writing her 2016 book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Good research is key to me liking something, and Roach's research? Mwah. Mary Roach most definitely influenced the creation of this podcast. Next time you're on Twitter, thank at Mary underscore Roach for helping to inspire your favorite show at Brain on Facts Pod. I'm also on Facebook and Insta, Your Brain on Facts, and don't forget you can get to our Facebook group or our subreddit at yourbrainonfacts.com slash social. I'm also considering a TikTok, but I can't decide on a username that serves both the podcast and my voiceover business because I cannot be asked to do two more feeds. 
And probably going to do Clubhouse because everybody keeps telling me I need to do Clubhouse. Does anyone know a good social media virtual assistant? Now hiring. Sadly, even the inimitable Mary Roach couldn't find out all that much about the project as it was still classified until she met Michael Morrissey, the founder of a website called Muckrock, which specializes in helping people with information requests like these. Amazingly, Morrissey managed to track down the people who handled Navy mandatory declassification reviews, and Roach was able to get a hold of the final report relating to the exploding shark plan called Project Headgear. Sadly, the headgear was not lasers. You know, I have one simple request, and that is to have sharks with frickin' laser beams attached to their heads. Project Headgear was a secret mission where shark biologists and weapons specialists teamed up to convert sharks into bomb delivery systems, which would detonate when they got near an enemy ship. This wasn't a fly-by-night, flash-in-the-pan, spitballing idea. The program actually ran from 1958 to 1971. As detailed in MIT's science magazine Undark, and you should definitely check out their podcast, the idea was that bombs would be strapped to the shark, which would also wear a box on its head, like a terrifying tefillin. The box had a compass and could communicate with mission control aboard the warship and was wired to electrodes inserted into the shark's shoulders. Not only is that terrible sounding, now I can't get past the idea of sharks having shoulders. It's like the phrase penguin knees. Sharks were preferred for this project over dolphins, as the latter seemed too smart and could not be trusted to follow orders. Clever and contrary? I knew I liked dolphins for a reason. As with Acoustic Kitty, there's no good way to steer a shark. I say no good way because they did find a way, but it wasn't a good one. If the shark swam off course, the box on its head would give it a zap. Between 5 and 25 volts, on one side or the other to correct it. Although manually shocking the sharks worked initially, later tests in swimming pools had disappointing results because the sharks, unsurprisingly, didn't do what the humans wanted. If the electrical signals sent to the shark were too weak, the shark simply ignored them. If the signal was too strong, the shark would, understandably, make, quote, radical and even violent movements, not that you can blame them, and wouldn't change its course as requested. In the end, it was determined that sharks make rubbish suicide bombers. None of the sharks would continue swimming toward the enemy target for more than half an hour, which means they only cover about three-quarters of a nautical mile, 0.8 regular mile, or 1.4 kilometers. That's not nearly enough to be of any use in a sneak attack scenario. Another group of researchers found that sharks were not really suited for carrying a payload. They're nature's perfect killing machine, after all, not a beast of burden. The project was declared a resounding failure. It's a system perhaps better suited to land targets and land mammals. A pack animal, a donkey, say, or a mule, writes Roach is accustomed to carrying loads and responsive to simple left-right directional irritants like bits and spurs. Today, of course, the U.S. military has drones to do this work. So who needs donkeys? And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Pestry persuaded the military to use an entire Mississippi island to train, he hoped, as many as two million dogs. 
The plan was to use the dogs as a first wave of attack out of the landing craft during island invasions. The attack would be followed by U.S. troops as the Japanese presumably fled in terror and confusion. In a bizarre parallel to the ill-fated Russian anti-tank dog, there were no Japanese soldiers to train the dogs with. A lot of the dogs refused to obey, and none of them could function when exposed to shell fire. So the multi-million dollar program was canceled. Thanks to our guest quote readers, and be sure you check out their shows too. Hello, my name is Paul, and I'm one of the hosts of the Varmints Podcast, which is all about animals. Hey, this is KG from the Public Filmcast. Tandi from my handle is Jonathan Blade. Remember, you can always find the source notes and the script for the show at Your Brain on Facts. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.